Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, hey, Ben, welcome back. We are studying sections 12 and 13 today. I'm actually really excited. We finally get to do talk about John the Baptist that apparently I've wanted to talk about for the last four weeks. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know you've been waiting for this. <laughs> yes, I have been. So it's going to be a great discussion. But jumping in, we are looking at section 12. It, it, and these are really small sections, but they, they pack a big punch, especially a little bit of context and back, background story to them. But to section 12 is a, a revelation given in May of 1829 to Joseph Knight Sr. And then section 13 is the blessing that John the Baptist gives to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery when he confers upon them the Aaronic Priesthood. Even though these are short, I think the, the most time we're going to spend... <laughs> right now is in Oliver Cowdery's tale. It's one of those moments that we never we never really read Oliver Cowdery's tale. And I, and I don't know why it is so beautiful. I don't know why it hasn't been incorporated more into like an actual section of the DNC. Yeah, it doesn't get its own verses, right? It's just this asterisk footnote off of verse 71 in the Joseph Smith history. I've read it several times. Even each time I read it, I'm like, oh, wow, this is, oh, wow. Oh, this is great. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Oliver Cowdery, uh, that man had a way with words, and his description is uh, really spectacular. Notwithstanding, at the end of it, he says that his experience is past description. He does, in my opinion, a, a pretty good job. Now, not having seen an angel myself, maybe he actually, in reality, does a very poor job. <laughs> Which is going to show how magnificent the experience right. actually was, right? But I, I think it's really interesting to point out, starting in section 12, just how much many of these themes are repeated. You know, we start here in section 12, A great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Behold, I am God. Give heed to my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow. Therefore, give heed unto my word. Behold, the field is white already to harvest. Therefore, whoso desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with his might and reap while the day lasts, that he may treasure up for his soul everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God. We are, I mean, we, we see this same kind of language that comes around in like section four and also to other people throughout the DNC. So it's just, it's interesting that this is the language that they're using, that this is the imagery that they're understanding. And then in verse six, we come back to that concept that we've repeated now several times about the cause of Zion. Now, as you have asked, behold, I say unto you, keep my commandments and sing to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. I think this is fascinating because we have to recognize that these guys, they're in 1829. This is May of 1829. The church isn't going to be organized for almost an entire year after this, but already they're talking about this cause of Zion. Now, in context of who and what they are, that's really not abnormal. 
because, you know, through this whole like second great awakening and the burnt over district there in New York, this whole Zion and millennialism and the coming of Christ and this idea of restoration, it's one of those shocking moments for a lot of members to recognize that the LDS church was not the only restorationist church that existed at the time. And in fact, there in that, in that own region, there were many other churches that had claimed and were claiming to be the original restored church. The, the one that followed the scriptural patterns, the, one, the ones that followed the way that Jesus and the apostles originally meant the church to operate, right? And this was not, this was not uncommon. Right. And one of the arguments that I've read for why the church ended up succeeding besides the fact that, that we call this the, the true restoration, the only true and living church, is because they left the union and they went out and they isolated themselves. It's the only religion and restorationist movement of its kind that actually had to leave and completely isolate itself in order to survive. Because all these other isolationist churches, because they stuck around, they ended up fragmenting and joining other churches. They reabsorbed back into the, the mainstream Christianity, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Just like the, the RLDS church became the community of Christ and kind of was absorbed into that. It's the exact same kind of thing. And so we begin to see that this whole cause of Zion speak is really a very popular phrase and understanding of what people are talking about. But I still think it's fascinating that they're looking for, this is the whole purpose by which they are moving and acting. You know, we're already beginning to think that the field is wide and all ready to harvest. There's already these feelings of anticipation that something's about ready to happen, that we're going to grow into something. We don't even know what this is yet. As to this date, they'd had persecutions, bad things had happened. Joseph had been in a lot of different fights along the time. They have not experienced anything remotely close to what they're going to experience in the future, right? So in this, we have all of this hope in moving forward. Joseph has endured kind of the hellish hues of losing the manuscripts, and we talked about that whole false self dealing with the, the guilt and shame of, of the false self, as it were. With Oliver, we all of a sudden get these sections where it's like they're talking about hope. It's like this God of hope who's coming out with, with Oliver and, and talking this message that you can just see that this time in their life, as Joseph and Oliver are working together, and obviously they work together really well, that they are now beginning to to kind of grow and expand into their uh, into their own. But here I get you know going back, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But here in section twelve, it's to Joseph Knight Senior, and Joseph Knight Senior is is really one of those men that are held up in church history as the archetype of the true and faithful servant, right? Because he was one of the very first people who were baptized. He was baptized just a month or two after the church was organized. He migrated from his home right there in, uh, I think he was in Philadelphia right there uh, where Joseph had been. And he had migrated down into Missouri. He was a part of the whole purge from Missouri. He ended up in Nauvoo. And then his family was shipped off. They marched out with the saints in 1847. And he actually died en route to the Salt Lake Valley. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of that archetype. So when we read this, we're talking about a guy who had lasted with the church, who had endured every persecution that is going to be heaped upon the saints from the very beginning. And this kind of becomes a special section in recognizing who it's to, that this is kind of his own special 
you know, I don't want to go so far as to say like a patriarchal blessing, but you know, this revelation, you know, he can cherish this, he can hold on to this, this, you know, gives him uh, hope for the future. But I love in verse eight, and no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble and full of love, having faith, hope, and charity, being temperate in all things whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. And I just, I love that because that's, that's the emotion, that's the feeling, that's the kind of the theme by which even a year before the restoration has happened and the restored church has been organized, this is how they're seeing their calling. This is how they're being told to act in love, in hope, in charity, to be temperate. They're living in civilization as they know it, but man, they're going to start coming into moments in in Missouri in not, in not too many years where they're going to be confronted with a lot of really rough people. And so this call to be love and have faith and hope and charity to be temperate is going to be put to the test. You know, that's an interesting point to make. And I see here in this verse, I, this phrase here says, no one can assist in this work except, and then goes on to describe. And I kind of look at that as like, okay, so if we if we don't have these qualities or we're not we're not living by these principles, then whatever we think we're doing isn't really helping the work, right? <laughs> you know, whatever um, you know, retaliation parties we are gathering together to go and, and fight the mobs off, if they're not done in this attitude according to these principles, they're not really assisting in the work. Uh, no matter how much you think that you're you know, defending the saints, right? When we get to uh, more talking about Missouri and what goes on there, we'll talk about that because there's some really fascinating dynamics with looking at what actually happened in the history and what the saints did versus the revelations they were given. And, you know, they don't match up. <laughs> Very good. The saints, <laughs> the saints really did not uh, follow in general, I should say. Obviously, there, there are some that did, but sort of the general trend of the saints didn't follow some of the directions that they were given. And as a consequence, there were issues. Let me backtrack on that a little bit and say that it wasn't necessarily that a majority didn't follow, but there was enough of them that didn't that it created problems, right? That's kind of off into a tangent a little bit. I like how you brought up in verse eight, you know, that these are, uh, these are the prerequisites for this work. You know, I kind of look at this section here, 12, it has similar wording to Several of the sections before it, how it starts off. This is almost like a uh, um, a revelation template, <laughs> you <Right>. know. Like <laughs> it's almost like Joseph Smith is is like, okay, Lord says, okay, Joseph Smith, use uh, template number two, throw a name in there. That's his revelation, you know. <laughs> We're gonna get some like that a little bit later, and it's kind of an interesting thing. Why is it that this revelation is word for word the same as the other? It just has a different name in it. And there's different ways you can go about explaining that. It's uh, perfectly valid to say, hey, um, Joseph Smith, some of these are Joseph Smith's words, but they are still the will of the Lord for that person. That person has a particular calling and Joseph Smith in his office is tasked with giving that person an assignment so that they have a direction to move in and a way to go that gives them purpose. It may seem a little impersonal and a little odd that have these repetition of these way that these revelations are given, but actually that's a pretty common scriptural theme 
pattern for there to be that type of repetition. Yeah, I think also the repetition, we can look at it negatively being like, well, what good is it if it's just a, if it's just everybody's getting the same thing? You know? <laughs> I mean, you can look at it that way. But when you look at this particular template, what is it about this message that frames the theme for the importance of everything going forward? What is the thought, the process, the heart, the mind space, kind of the heart space that, that these people are in where this message is now relevant? We've talked about the two-edged sword. We've talked about the field being all white. We've talked about the cause of Zion. We've talked about moving forward with the word of God and letting that sink into people. And I love in verse 8 where it says that no one can assist. And I didn't even think about it until you, you said assist. And then the question is like, but who are they assisting? He's not being called here to assist Joseph. Right. He, he's being called into the assist in the work of God. Again, this is God's work. God's doing God's thing. And God does a lot of stuff. <laughs> we have the ability of being called to assist God in doing what he's doing. And we talked about this a little bit, uh, maybe last week or the week before, in how we pray. In that when we talk about praying for someone else, or that my prayers have kind of changed over time where now I'm praying to... I, I think I presupposed my prayers of being like, God, you know, I don't know if you're aware yet, but uh, someone over here is suffering, and can you, can you go bless them, you know? And I, and I was doing this all subconsciously. This is obviously not what I'm thinking consciously when I go to pray for someone. But as I started kind of taking more inventory about the kind of the implications and the assumptions of my prayer, I was like, man, that's that's really not what I'm. my heart is at. That's not really what I'm really trying to ask. But it's really that I want to be involved in a conversation and, and having God God's already over there doing what God does, but I want to be involved in this. I want to add my, I want to add my name to this. I want to be involved in what God's doing and mm -hmm. really show my intentionality of love. That's what this assistance is. God's going to accomplish whatever God's got got to do because God's God. You know, his work is not going to be thwarted. It doesn't matter who does what. And I don't see God being in a hurry. I think being in a hurry is a human emotion. That, that's a human experience. It's not like God's like, oh, I'm behind schedule. I got to catch up. That's just, not, I don't see that being, <laughs> I don't see God being like, man, I shouldn't have watched that game yesterday. I should have, I should have done my work over here. You know, <laughs> it's just not the way that works. And so everything's happening exactly as it needs to, right where it needs to happen. When we kind of step into that space, there's no reason for anxiety. There's no reason for, there's no reason to be anything else other than just what God asks us to be today. And so when we look at this, no one can assist in this work except this. But if you want to assist, come help and assist. If you don't want to, you know, we talked to, you know, when Joseph, when, when the Lord was talking to Joseph about the men that Joseph was fearing in turning over the 116 pages, and God's like, they weren't even, I could have shown them everything that I was going to show to you. And they wouldn't have accepted it. They could have had the same experiences, and they wouldn't have counted it as you have counted it. And I know that about them. And it's almost like God's like, I've got them. I'm going to take care of them. It's okay. I'm here for you. You're Joseph. You be Joseph. You let me be God. And if you want to assist in this work, well, then come assist in this work. This is how you can assist in this work, right? And so, and so I love that word assist there. 
Yeah, I think it does fit really well. You, you were, as you were talking, I was <laughs> just remembering, um, the family home evening that we most recently had. And, and uh, my wife and I had been talking about some of these sections in the Doctrine of Covenants and, and just sort of the, the tone of them and how the Lord is working with Joseph Smith and trying to bring him up and teach him how to do this and mold him into a prophet, so to speak, right? My wife uh, was kind of directing the lesson and she went around, she had each of us, you know, look to another person in the family and compliment them, talk to them about something that they noticed that they were doing well in their life, and then tell them, everything's going to be okay, I love you. <laughs> and that was kind of the message that she got from these early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, that the Lord was saying, you're doing a good job, everything's going to be okay, I love you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, love and I just that. thought it was an interesting thing, you know, like... We had finished it, and, and my wife was over. She was getting some treats for the kids, and kids were getting a little frustrated with something. My wife got a little frustrated. I just walked over, and I hugged her, and I said, everything's going to be okay. You're doing a good job. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite the message. It's true. I do see that in here. I like the repetitiveness of it, actually. This section, just as you were talking about, this whole, this anticipation, so to speak, that's going on, like what's going to be happening with it. It almost feels like a, like a pregame pep talk, right? You know, he's getting everybody prepared for the work that they're going to start having to do because they don't have any idea really what's coming. Yeah. How could you? I mean, it's the things that are about ready to happen to them. It's just, it's, it's just, yeah. I, it, how amazing is it that God is giving them that pep talk that we can look back with, uh, with eyes looking back and to see God doing this for them, to get them up to a level to where they'll be able to endure what, what is inevitably going to happen, right? And so when we have Joseph and Oliver, they sit down, they're translating, and I love the spirit that is associating in the translation process, that as Joseph and Oliver are sitting down and they're, and they're, they're doing this now, first of all, Joseph didn't know Oliver, I think until it says in the history until what, 1829? And so in April of 1829, it's a month later that they're booking it through these pages. Right. And and so they get down to Third Nephi, and they're reading in Third Nephi when Jesus is talking about baptism in Third Nephi 11, where it says, is it uh, in 12, when he says that you need to be baptized by the authority. And so they're like, well, we need to be baptized. And then at this point, this gets them up and out as they're translating, and they pray. And this is where the vision of John the Baptist comes from, right? Right. So it's just, it's, it's interesting, the whole scripture and the whole coming to scripture and the whole use of scripture as a way of invoking revelation. I love how God will impress upon them, because when I read scripture, I'm reading it now more for a purpose of instead of actually understanding maybe the point-for-point point doctrine that I'm reading, and that's really the typical way that I've read Scripture for a long time. But now I'm reading Scripture more the way of just kind of sitting with the spirit of it and letting it kind of percolate. And I love that God allows us all to do whatever is working for us, right? Because it, my whole life, God spoke to me. He worked with me. He led me along when I was trying to pull all of the, the story and the context and like and like tease all the doctrines and the principles out 
and in really trying to kind of analyze the intellectual history of the scriptures and the other history and and, and, and wrap it around back to other stories. <laughs> and God, God was there when I was doing it. And now when I come to the scriptures, I sit down and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that as much anymore. <laughs> that just that doesn't <laughs> that just doesn't appease me much anymore. And it's perfectly fine if it does for anyone else. Um, God did it for me. But now when I get down to, and I and I sit with the scriptures, I just I want to have a moment when I just feel what's there to be felt, and then let whatever comes come. So I love that they're reading, they're translating, they're reading, and they're asking questions, and it's from this. The same thing, God's sitting there within their in their experience. And now he's like, oh, there you go. That's what we need right there. Now they're going to go in, they're going to pray. Now's the moment to do this. And so now they're praying about, they're asking the right questions. And, I, and you know, Ben, we live in a church culture that really, really, <laughs> I can't emphasize really enough. We really value answers. It's like, we've got an answer. You got a question. We got an answer for everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, And that's the way I've been. I'm like, man, I, mean, I have a question. I need to get an answer. And it's like, oh, I read the scriptures and I got my answer. And we promote that narrative over and over again. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I'm, I'm starting to love, and, and I think we've talked about this uh, before. I'm beginning to love sitting with the questions. I love good questions. The questions that you know went all the way to the throne of God and you're sitting down there by your, by you just kind of by yourself. Well, I'm sitting by myself most of the time. And I'm like, that was a really good question. And I almost was like the Holy Ghost is sitting down there next to me, smiling, excited. He's like, yeah, that was a really good question. Good job. <laughs> and I'm like, it was a really good question. And, and it's just the question that automatically invokes, not like a singular answer. It's so all-encompassing of really bringing my whole life into focus. Like the better the question, I don't get like specific answers, but it's like my whole life becomes resolved. And it's really weird. I don't know how better to explain it. I'm going to get really abstract really fast if I keep on going with that. But I love this answer to prayer that leads to this experience. Because, you know, going back to our first DNC, uh, our first DNC podcast, or, or at least the one with the first vision, we talked about how Joseph had been arguing, or at least seeing people argue in joining religions, that they wanted to point out and to frame true and correct beliefs as per their interpretation from Scripture, Right. He's like, it's like, we have all the answers. Here's our box. Our box is the true and right box. Our box is the only box that matters. And you can't possibly disagree with my box and my definitions and my thing of truth. And then they would proceed to go out and have, and just lambaste and be angry and fight against anybody who doesn't agree with their box. But then he's like, that, that can't be the way. And then he has the James moment where he goes in to pray and then God gives him an experience. And this is another one of those moments. They're like, man, I don't understand what these scriptures mean. They're not going to try to like rationalize and defend it themselves. They're like, let's go ask God. And what God ends up doing, <laughs> he just gives it, he gives them an experience. And I think that is why I love Oliver's words so much because it's not, it's not like an axiomatic truth. Mm-hmm. It's just the way he explains this. I'm like, man, that entire thing for you was nothing but just, 
sitting with God and having a moment with 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 this angel. And and as soon as you get you start to read a little bit what he says, <laughs> you're like, man, Oliver had a moment. Like that was that was seriously a moment for Oliver. And then when I read it, I'm like, I want that moment for myself. Yeah, I don't think you can read Oliver's experience and think that he made it up. Now, you may think that, okay, you know, maybe him and Joseph just went out in the forest and tripped on, you know, shrooms or something. But you you can't deny that he had some sort of experience. Like, there's no way that he's describing that out of pure imagination, right? There's there's something that happened there to Oliver. And um, it's, it's absolutely amazing, <clears throat> his description of it. You know, as you were talking about, you know, your experience with scripture and with God, I wonder, I started thinking of a a potential parallel um, sort of analogy here, and it might be with food, right? So like you, um, you look at recipes and you talk about how you're going to make this food and this is going to be really good and this is how you're going to spice it and and you follow the recipe this way and well what if you change this little thing you know so it's it's all this discussion about how you're going to make and cook food which is really fun right it's really fun to like make and and cook the food and and spice it in this way and that way and make it look really pretty and everything but it's a totally different experience to eat it right it's something different and obviously you know these don't these analogies don't match up perfectly but i think that maybe there's a little bit of a parallel here in terms of like knowing all of the the steps and ins and outs of how something is versus just putting in your mouth and tasting it you know we talked about salt uh once you know as as sort of the you, you know you can talk about what salt is and all that but until you just put it in your mouth and taste it it's a different experience than talking about what salt is. But I think, you know, food could be the same way. And, you know, at one point in your life as a kid, you know, kids generally like very simple flavors, right? They And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, they can get all the nutrition that they need and they can eat good food and have simple flavors. But as you grow up, you know, you want something, you want more nuanced flavors and you want to, um, you know, experience a little more of, of what there is to experience. And so, um, that's what I think, you know, that I, I think that parallel might work a little bit with what you're talking about and to help elucidate that a little bit. I think the, that this story is an example of the Lord giving us experience and knowledge and understanding or knowledge by experience when we're ready for it. You know, certainly the Lord could have said, by now he could have said, Hey, you know, you guys are going to need to organize the church soon. And so, um, here's, here's the checklist of the things we're going to need to do. You need, you know, we got to get the Book of Mormon published check. You know, we got to get the, the priesthood, this priesthood check and this priesthood check. And he could have had like this checklist of all these things that needed to happen for the church to be restored. And, oh, you know, it's coming up. We got to do it in 1830. So we got to get all this done. You know, like you were talking about being in a hurry. And that wasn't the way that it was at all. Because the Lord's purpose wasn't to like hurry up and get everything done, right? The Lord's purpose isn't to like get these tasks accomplished. It's we are his purpose. It's to bring us up into experiences 
And so as Joseph and Oliver were prepared for this thing and they went to the Lord that said, Lord was like, okay, you're ready for this experience. Here's this one, you know, and it was just a, it's just a very natural way of moving along rather than just like a, a pushed or, or directed, um, type of, of discovery. It was when, when you're prepared and you're ready, you're going to receive it in the way that you'll best understand. And that's how I see it uh, for us as individuals. And then for the restoration as a whole, you know, there were so many things that Joseph Smith received at this point um, that he didn't even have much of an understanding of. Um, in fact, it, it's not obvious at this time um, that he really had any idea of what the priesthood really was or what Aaronic versus Melchizedek priesthood, you know, this distinction and, and understanding and nuance didn't really come into doctrine for another decade. And so at this time when he's receiving these things, he, it's either given in a, in a, in a way that, uh, he'll understand. Or as he's looking back on it later at a later date, he's like, oh, that's what that meant. And I think there's a lot of that going on with his revelation. So he's recounting this and, you know, whether or not there's a little, um, there's a little difference in the way that Joseph Smith quotes John the Baptist and that Oliver does. So Joseph Smith says this, he says that when John the Baptist came, he said this upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now, the phrases that we get in here are very, very common phrases that we use in the church to refer to specific types of doctrines that we teach. So one being priesthood of Aaron, in other words, you know, Aaronic priesthood is this thing that we have a chapter on in the gospel doctrine book, right? right. <laughs> and it, it's specific. This is what this is. You know, it's very formulated and it's, it's got subheadings of all the different offices and boom, there's, you know, wrapped up in a nice little package. Here's the priesthood of Aaron. Here's the Aaronic priesthood, right? And then we have these keys okay here's here's its own chapter and it's all you know so we have these little packages of these these gospel principles sort of packaged up in here and and i almost see this as as the the later joseph smith obviously he's writing in 1838 he's going back and he's um putting in his 1838 understanding into the revelations he received at that time um, now, I'm not saying that he's uh, changing it. I'm saying that his 1838 understanding informs his pre- prior experience such that he's interpreting it through that lens, right? And Oliver Cowdery has it in a little bit different way. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't emphasize the exact same things. He says here, upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority. So it doesn't say anything specifically about Aaronic, although um, he does explain in the experience that he is acting under the direction of, of Peter, James, and John. Um, which shall remain upon the earth 
that I, you can throw a so in there, so that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Um, I've been chewing on this for just a little bit, trying to figure out like, not only why does Joseph Smith say it a little different from Oliver Cowdery, but what does Oliver Cowdery's mean? We focus more on Joseph Smith's recounting of what John the Baptist says, um, because then it's been canonized, not just in the Joseph Smith history, but then also as its own section in the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, this thing has the double stamp of approval, right? So <laughs> um, Oliver Cowdery, though, he says it a little differently. And, and I actually, I kind of like it more because it means something more to me. So that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. So who are the sons of Levi? Well, these are um, the Levites, right? These are descendants of the tribe of Levi that were supposed to have had the Aaronic priesthood, as we call it, or the Levitical priesthood conferred upon them because they were responsible for the temple ordinances. They were responsible for for taking care of those things. They had that responsibility. And so um, as I'm kind of, you know, thinking about this and sort of pondering over what he, he means here. Um, I think that the, the Lord's work is a, is a lot bigger. Um, there's a lot more going on here is what I, I kind of want to say than just John the Baptist restoring the Aaronic priesthood so that we can have um, priests, teachers and deacons quorums and, you know, administer the sacrament. Like, there's a lot more going on here. And, and it's often alluded to when we talk to the, the young men about the Aaronic priest and they say, Hey, you know, this is amazing. You have keys of the ministering of angels and the gospel of repentance about, do you know what these are? And they all go, Oh uh, yeah, we think so. And then, <laughs> you know, you go on to explain it as if you know what they are because you don't, <laughs> you, you have no idea what they are. Um, I don't really know what these are. I can, I can kind of, Yes, and I can, based on my experience on the priesthood and then being through experiences with the priesthood, but I believe that these keys here that are mentioned and what Oliver Cowdery talks about, is there's, there's so much more there. Um, and I think it's brought out by the fact that he goes on for paragraph after paragraph talking about John and how amazing this experience is. And then at the end, he says um, – it's it's past description. Like he just gives up. He's like, I, I I can't tell you how amazing this is. It's just it it was incredible. Um, I I'm I'm out of words, and yet his words do a pretty good job, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean they're absolutely amazing, and I, and I loved what you said there about uh, about the priest about have knowing no idea what this is, right? And, and this is one of the things that I've, I've lamented myself. Now, for me personally, I had, I had my patriarchal blessing when I was 14. And I don't know how my dad did it, but he was able to kind of be able to get me to go and have my patriarchal blessing done by, uh, Patriarch Smith. Connections. And, yeah, connections, right? <laughs> Elder G. Smith, who was the patriarch to the church. He was the last patriarch to the church. And, uh, and so I have a, I have a Patriarch Smith patriarchal blessing and, when I went up there to meet him when I was 14, I went up to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building, and if I would have known, I mean, I know now that he had a reputation for talking for like an hour to two hours before giving a blessing. If I would have known, I would have brought like a tape recorder. 
because that's what smart people do to remember these kinds of things. But I didn't know that he talked for many hours beforehand, and it's actually recorded. I've read I've read several uh, things about him since then. <laughs> since then, and everyone says yes. If you're going to go see him, bring a tape recorder because he'll talk and he'll just keep on talking. He's be- anyway. So one of the things that he talked about was that he said he said now Shiloh, he says, have you ever heard of the patriarchal order of priesthood? <laughs> now I'm 14. <laughs> And I'm, and and you know, in my family, we I'd heard it talked about that it's a thing, but I had never, I didn't know anything about it. And he he says that's by design. And he says the church will never talk about the patriarchal order of priesthood. That is something that Jesus Christ reserves Himself to talk about. And I remember being dumbfounded. I'm like, wow, wow, that's something that. That's something that uh, that Jesus Christ talks about, and I was, I was like, okay, so so there, you know, even at a young age, I'm kind of having these ideas enter in that I'm thinking about that there are these things that Jesus Christ, re- you know, that the church is not going to come out and reveal these things that you revealed these things per, uh, personally, and so when President Nelson came out in April of 2016, he has this talk called the Price of Priesthood Power. Uh, it was it was in uh, the Priesthood session in April 2016. Where he says, brethren, in like manner, I fear that there are too many men who have given, who have been given the authority of the priesthood, but who lack priesthood power because the flow of power has been blocked by sins of laziness, dishonesty, pride, and morality and preoccupation with things of the world. I fear that there are too many priesthood bearers who have done little to nothing to develop their ability to access priesthood, the powers of heaven. I worry that there are about all those who are impure in their thoughts, feelings, or actions, who demean their wives and children, thereby cutting off priesthood power. I fear that too many have sadly surrendered their agency to the adversary and are saying by their conduct, I care more about satisfying my own desires than I do about bearing the Savior's power to bless others. I fear, brethren, that some among us may one day wake up and realize what power in the priesthood really is and face the deep regret that they spent far more time seeking power over others or power at work than learning to exercise fully the power of God. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty, <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a deep statement to be making. And, and he goes on to talk about how he, he's sad that we don't, we don't know what this thing is that we have. And, and so I was just like, man, that's, you know, for President uh, Nelson to be talking about this, that he doesn't think that many men even recognize what priesthood power is. And priesthood really is one of those things that differentiates the entire narrative of what makes us, us, right? Because like we have the authority. That authority is a central narrative. But the fact is, is that with all of our talk, I don't know about you, Ben, but in every core meeting I've ever been in or every priesthood session I've ever had, they usually revolve around some kind of giving blessings or participating in ordinances, you know, like temple ordinances or giving yeah, either blessings or baptism, passing the sacrament or, or temple ordinances. Those are shadows of shadows. <laughs> right. I'm like, yeah. is, it, are, is that really it? Right. Is that is is that is that really everything that it was getting? I mean, is is that really what sets us apart? That half of our population just gets to do half of these things, just a few of these things. And I'm like, man, there's got to be something more than this. And so, you know, President uh, 
McConkie or Elder McConkie ends up having, and it's one of my favorite talks in the early eighties. Doctrine of the priesthood. Yeah. You know, you already know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I love that talk. It's one of my all time favorite where he talks about how very, the world doesn't understand what the priesthood is. And he says only a few people in our own church do. He's like, <laughs> our, our church, you know, we have this pride about having the priesthood and being God's chosen people in, in the true and living church. And it's like, and we have absolutely no idea what this thing is that we have. You know, it's, it's like a matter of, it's like a badge we wear with no idea what it means. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, it's not a call, you know, this is not being critical. This is more one of those moments that I, I had to recognize this in my life personally, that I knew much less about this than I thought I did. Now, I, I've read books about it. There's a great new book out um, by Jonathan Stavely called The Powers of Godliness, and it goes through and it talks about kind of Mormon liturgy and cosmology and, and the evolution of priesthood thought. I think it's out by Oxford University Press. I've read that. I've, I've read books. I've read books, all sorts of books on priesthood. But there's been very little written about it. And even President uh, McCon- or Elder McConkie said, listen, not much has been said over the pulpit. Not much is going to be said over the pulpit. Not much is said in Scripture, and it's not going to be said in Scripture. And then McConkie ended up reiterating the same thing that Patriarch Smith told me as a teenager. The Lord is going to reveal these things personally. That most of these things are reserved for God to reveal himself and the Spirit. And so, you know, whenever we talk about these things, you know, and, and going through and talking about the prayer here of, of what John the Baptist reveals— to say that he comes down and he says that he confers the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels, the gospel of repentance, and a baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Well, we think we kind of get baptism down, but even as an adult, even as an adult in the church who's been in the church's whole life, baptism for me is something that I'm still just feeling like I'm cracking and just, just like cracking the surface of, scratching the surface, I think. And coming to recognizing what this means and having these new experiences of breaking open into, into a new way of being. And I love the way Oliver puts baptism is basically being buried in the liquid grave. And we're going to get that to the, and just, I'm going to use that, I think, from here forth, <laughs> henceforth and forever, the liquid grave. But it's just, it's, it's beautiful. So when Joseph in, in, in verse 74, our minds now being enlightened we begin to have the scriptures laid open to our understanding and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner in which we could never have attained previously, nor ever before had thought of. Yeah, got that mark too. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's it's kind of one is section one twenty one, right? It says you let virtue garnish your thoughts unceasingly, and they they they, they distill upon the souls of the dews from heaven. And in this kind of thing, it's more like, in, I think, in like a, a wave in this particular moment when all of a sudden they come up out of the water, they come into the, out of this experience, and all of a sudden these these mysteries that have been mysteries, all of a sudden they, they begin to make sense to them. Yeah, um, going back to a little bit to this verse um, of John the Baptist speaking to them, you know, I, I, I've had a, a couple thoughts on these these few things here. He says, keys of the ministering of angels. You know, I I think it was implied whenever we discussed this and in corners before that this had to do with being able to call down angels. 
And um, I don't doubt that that's the case, but I think the, the true power here that we're talking about in terms of the priesthood is not just calling down angels, but being angels, right? That that the calling of the Aaronic priesthood is to be an angel, someone sent from God who has the Holy Ghost with them, so sent from the presence of God is literally what an angel is, to serve and bless and uplift others. In what way? Two things primarily. The gospel of repentance. What's gospel? Good news. What's repentance? Turning to see God for who he really is. So someone that can go out and can bring the people to an understanding of who our Heavenly Father really is through showing his love, and then being able to offer that experience to others, that experience of baptism. And the keys not only being the quote-unquote authority to physically perform the ordinance, but the power by which we can bring that person into an experience that they actually um, desire that ordinance um, so that then we can just offer it, you know, kind of like Alma, right? Like I see Alma really fulfilling this, like really fulfilling this Aaronic priesthood, these Aaronic priesthood keys. You know, he goes and he teaches the people, he brings them into repentance, he brings them to the water and he says, what do you have against getting baptized? Because then he, he, you know, goes out through the covenant and they say, you know, we want to be baptized. And we refer to that a lot, but I just see that played out so well in this verse right here with what the Aaronic priesthood is. And we call it the preparatory priesthood because all of these things then are preparing us to sit in the presence of God, to sit, to go up on the mount, and then sit with Christ and have him teach us. And so I, I just think that's that's so beautiful. And then again, going into what Oliver Cowdery says about this experience, um, I love what you brought up about, about verse 74 there. I had that marked as well. Um, and that's that's an experience in and of itself for, for a person to have gone through some life experiences that have, have changed them. They've come, become a different person. They return to scripture and scripture, all of a sudden, it's like totally new to them. I mean, how could it not be to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery at this point? They just experienced the literal ministering of an angel. When they return to scripture, it's going to mean something completely new and um, more profound in in ways they had never dreamed of before. And so that that really makes sense to me that it would be that way. I'm going here into what Oliver Cowdery says. So much is is really profound. I I do like how he refers to baptism as as liquid grave. I think that's that's unique, and um, <laughs> it really really throws that imagery in there and makes you you know kind of like sit up and think about it for a little bit, you know. Or sit back and think about it, whatever, whatever works for you. <laughs> so uh, I, I started marking where he was talking about um, John the Baptist. And then I just like kept going because I was like, I don't, okay, this, I don't know where to stop <laughs> in his experience here. Because um, it's it's just amazing. You know, you should, you should read it. You should listen to it on the app and everything. But um, I... Let's see, the last paragraph here, one of the parts that, that really um, stuck out to me. He says, um, 
Man may deceive his fellow men, deception may follow deception, and the children of the wicked one the wicked one may have power to seduce the foolish and untaught, till naught but fiction feeds the many, and the fruit of falsehood carries in its current the giddy to the grave. So he's talking about, you know, all of the confusion that can go on and um all of the the capabilities of the adversary to to sow contention and confusion. You know, this is a little bit of a of a, a rehashing of Joseph Smith's pre-first vision experience. And then he says here, he says, but one touch with the finger of his love, yes, one ray of glory from the upper world, or one word from the mouth of the Savior, from the bosom of eternity, strikes it all into insignificance and blots it forever from the mind. The assurance that we were in the presence of an angel, the certainty that we heard the voice of Jesus, and the truth unsullied as it flowed from a pure personage, dictated by the will of God, is to me past description. And I shall ever look upon this expression of the Savior's goodness with wonder and thanksgiving while I am permitted to tarry. And in those mansions where perfection dwells and sin never comes, I hope to adore in that day which shall never cease. Yeah, I just kind of want to sit with that. Kind of um, goes to another statement of what Joseph Smith said, you know, something along the lines of, if man could look into heaven for just five minutes, he would learn more about it than all that has ever been written and discussed on the subject. And this this does go back to one of our themes that we've we've touched on often is that we can talk and talk and talk about God, which is necessary because what else are we going to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it does not replace the experience. Um, it cannot replace the experience. The experience is something else. We can cook food all day long, but it's a totally different thing to sit down and eat it. You know? Yeah. You know, we were talking about this excitement. You know, Joseph and Oliver had only been together a month. They'd only known each other for a month. Hmm. All this is going on. You know, it says in verse 66, on the fifth day of April, 1829, Oliver Cowdery came to my house until which time I had never seen him. He knew of him because he um, taught school nearby and his father kind of supported him. But yeah, he'd never met him before. He just Yeah, never met him, him before, right? Yeah. And so then on May 15th, so, I don't know, five, six weeks later, this event happens. But we can already tell because of the sections that we've talked about before. Dealing with Oliver, dealing with the rod, dealing with that whole experience. The tone completely changes from Joseph dealing with Morton. So this is a moment when it, there's so much going on. And in fact, Oliver comes right out and says, These were the days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice, dictated by the inspiration of heaven, awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued uninterrupted to write from his mouth, as he translated with the Yerman Thummim, or as the Nephites would have said, interpreters, the history or record called the Book of Mormon. You know, these were the days never to be forgotten. 
you know, he's he's looking at this by 1834. So, you know, he's he's a good five years after the fact writing this. And so he's looking back. No men in their sober senses could translate and write the directions given to the Nephites from the mouth of the Savior or of the precise manner in which men should build up his church. And especially when the corruption had spread and uncertainty over all forms and systems practiced among men without desiring a privilege of showing the willingness of the heart by being buried in the liquid grave to answer a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After writing the account given to the Savior's ministry to the remnants of the seed of Jacob upon this continent, it was easy to be seen, as the prophet said it would be, that darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people. You know, I love how he's using he's using that sa- the Savior's moment in coming to the Nephites. He's using mm-hmm. that moment to be able to contrast that now with how the world operates. Yeah. We, we were talking about the, we were talking about the same thing when we were talking about uh, the Third Nephi and chapters twelve in the Sermon on the Mount and the Savior's um, message. Right. Because we have to start learning how to see the world through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. That's really the whole thing. That's that cruciform hermeneutic. That is. That is the key that has blessed my life more in my scripture study than anything else. That's what eventually led me to the place where I just want to sit with the scriptures and see what's present with them is because of the time that was taken for for so long in just using the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as the filter by which I begin to see and read the scriptures and letting whatever came out come out from that. And what what happened, one of the very first things that happened was I began to see God completely, in a completely new way. Everything that I thought I had known about God, I basically had to scrap. Because what was coming present for me was this always present, loving, compassionate, merciful God who had never been anything else but. And that all of the condemnation, the punishment, the and, and the shame, the guilt, everything else that I had ever wrapped up into this other God— that was just my 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 egoistic projection and false self, and that came about by doing this very thing that Oliver is noticing, that this whole world that the Savior is opening up, this whole way of being, is completely different than the way of the world. And so, as Oliver continues, he says, "This was not long desired before it was realized. The Lord, who is rich in mercy, and ever willing to answer the consistent prayer of the humble." After we had called upon him in fervent manner, aside from the abodes of men, condescended to manifest to us his will. On a sudden, as from the midst of eternity, the voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us. While the veil was parted and the angel of God came down, clothed with glory and delivered the anxiously looked for message and the keys of the gospel of repentance. What joy, what wonder, what amazement. While the world was racked and distracted, while millions were groping as the blind for the, for the wall, and while all the men were resting upon uncertainty, as a general mass, our eyes beheld, our ears heard, and as the blaze of day, yes, more above the glitter of the May sunbeam, which then shed its brilliancy over the face of nature, this, this then this voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened. We gazed. We admired. Twas the voice of an angel from glory. Twas the message from the Most High. 
And as we heard, we rejoiced, while his love enkindled upon our souls, we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty. Where was room for doubt? Nowhere. Uncertainty had fled, doubt had sunk no more to rise, while fictions and deceptions had fled forever. Man, if, if you can write that, what was the experience like? <laughs> Man, I, I want that experience. Yeah, I really think Oliver, um, like I said before, he it, something definitely happened there. You know, this wasn't something that Joseph Smith and him made up. Um, there'd be no purpose to it. I mean, they didn't, neither of them got wealthy through this. Um, they never denied that this happened. Um, there's just... In any case, um, the, the testimony of it, the clarity of it, um, definitely is an invitation to this experience, right? Just like you said, you know, you want that by reading this. You want that experience because you recognize in Oliver that there's this sincerity, um, that this, this wasn't something that was made up. Yeah, and it's just like what you were talking about earlier with, you know, God could have done him in like, okay, guys, great job. Book of Mormon's done. Check. Okay, now you need John the Baptist. Check. Okay, Peter, James, and John. Check. All right, now you need to go get the Book of Mormon published and sent out the missionaries. Okay, check. He could have done that. But in a world where arguing for true and correct beliefs was all in vogue, these men were actually having experiences with the divine. The experience of the divine is what cast away the doubt. It wasn't that God came down and was like, here, let me give you a logical axiomatic statement for my for my existence. All right. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to prove the axiom of we're not trying to pr- make logical proofs for the existence of God here. It's not that they came down and, and Oliver's like, man, God gave me this whole logical proof and I can't dispel it. God must exist. No, it was that they came into the experience and it was in the experience that, that Oliver said that all doubt had had been cast forever. So this isn't just the promotion of belief. Now, we have to be at least be a little bit honest here with who Oliver was. Obviously speaking, in the moment Oliver is able to write this five years later, Oliver did end up having serious doubts. And I think that comes back to the point, you know, it, when I was reading this, Alma kind of came back into my mind, you know, in Alma 5, where he's like, have you ever felt to sing the song of redeeming love? Can you feel so now? And I think this is a, a moment of reflection in realizing everything that Oliver had experienced and being able to be able to be wrapped into this experience. And then to think, is this kind of experience what Alma the Younger was talking about? And am I still experiencing it? You know, as I've talked with friends and with uh, associates for the last several years about the Beatitudes and about emptying and about this whole Beatitude journey, it is so powerful and effective. Like the very first time you start doing it, you start to notice major shifts and transition. And it's like, it's like, man, stuff is just sloughing off all over the place. And you feel this huge weight and burden lifted off. 
And then inevitably people will come in and be like, hey, Shiloh, I, hey, I've completely emptied. Like, I, like, I, there's nothing more to empty. <laughs> like, like, oh, oh, boy. <laughs> what about those boxes over there in the corner? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and inevitably, whenever, whenever, me, and I know this from experience, the minute that I say, I, I did it, I've emptied, like, I'm there. <laughs> it's in that moment when you like, you realize that, nope, no, you, no, you haven't. <laughs> it's like moving, you know, you, you're like, okay, we've got it loaded. Nope, there's more stuff. <laughs> there's more the stuff. There's, a, there's always more stuff. Always you more start stuff. to realize. <laughs> you start to realize that the Beatitudes are not a destination. It's a journey. It's a per, it, it's a perpetual journey. And it's it's a conversation that as soon as you walk through the story of the Beatitudes and you've emptied and you've mourned and you stand there in in, in, in your meekness and you're you're hungry and you get fed. And then you stand there in in mercy for for yourself and for each other because God has been merciful to you. And then the purity of heart that that ensues because you've emptied, there's no more guile and you can't be anything else but a peacemaker. And then the world has no context to you anymore because you've emptied and you're meek, you've inherited the earth, but not because you're connected to anything else in life and anybody else's stories because you've emptied from the world's stories and identities. So they don't see you as, as it's like they can't even understand who and what you are anymore. And you think that you're going to be a peacemaker and that's just going to be it. Peace is going to be your lot in life. And the Savior's like, no. Because as soon as you're a peacemaker, guess what? You're going to have persecution. And blessed are those who are persecuted. And it's not even that, you know, we live in a, in a persecution complex where we think that if we go out and we kind of promote our beliefs and someone disagrees with us vehemently, then we're somehow being persecuted. And I'm like, that's, that's not. It's not, it's not persecution. People disagreeing with you vehemently is not persecution. That's just disagreement. <laughs> We've got to kind of up our standards, people. Right. You're like, what real persecution? I mean, people being crucified, uh, okay, that persecution, right? Driven out of your homes, shot, okay, persecution. But being disagreed with vehemently, not persecution. So <laughs> so in, in, in this way, we've got to recognize that when we come into this this life, we're going to be persecuted. And then all of a sudden, we're going to have to recognize that we have more to empty. And the cycle is going to keep on going over and over again. And I think Oliver is a really good example of this because in his life, he did. He, he did come to a place where it just, he had to leave. And even when he left, he never denies his testimony, right? There's still something that these these moments and these experiences stick with him. Because once you have this kind of experience, you can't deny these kinds of experiences. And I think that's one of those really powerful things about the three witnesses and about Oliver. In, in these, he had these experiences and, and of these kinds, you know it, you know God knows it, and you can't deny it. I mean, yeah, Oliver does later come out uh, and rejoin the church. In Utah, in later years, follows follows out and and uh, catches up with Brigham Young, but um, <clears throat> he had his his differences and and um, reservations. Reservations probably too mild a word for it. He had his bones to pick with Joseph Smith over several things that 
neither here nor there in this conversation necessarily. But uh, again, he never denied these experiences that he had. They are, you know, part of his knowledge. You know, like he says, there wasn't there wasn't doubt anymore that what they were doing was the work of God. You know, one of the things that I I'd thought about talking about with John the Baptist is is his message that he comes about in Luke. You know, he has this message where he talks to soldiers and he tells them, he tells them like, listen, go, go out, be, be good with people. Don't, don't do bad to people. And then he says, and don't commit violence. And this idea, uh, you know, that John the Baptist as the precursor to Jesus Christ, I don't think it is a haphazard moment that, uh, that God is looking at just kind of randomly picking people. But John the Baptist is the precursor. He's the one who came to prepare people to accept the Messiah that nobody knew was going to be a Messiah. To be able to recognize that John the Baptist was this one that was preparing people to see God differently. And he had to be a martyr for it. And he was a martyr for it. And so I I think that factors into what you said, Ben, about uh, about Section 13. I never thought about it in those terms before, and I, I'm, I'm going to think about that for a while, about ministering angels, about being the ministering angel, that God would send the one that was the precursor for Christ before to start the ball rolling again the second time, mm-hmm. to be the one to bring this, to bring, and not, and not just to bring the, the ironic priesthood, but to be the one who brings the message of going out and preaching the gospel of repentance unto baptism. Who else other than the Baptist to do so, Right. Yeah, and it, you know, you brought up the the two my two favorite fe- teachings of John the Baptist. So I'm going to go off on them. So one is is he talks to the soldiers, and he says, "Do violence to no man," which basically is the job of a soldier. So they like, I mean, <laughs> if they're really to follow jo- uh, John's counsel, they have to quit being soldiers. And then he tells the publicans, the tax collectors, he says, don't collect more than, uh, you know, than you're due, than, than is supposed to be due. Well, <laughs> um, that's actually the publicans. Um, they were supposed to collect taxes. You know, Rome said you need X amount. And they were supposed to collect that. And then anything they got beyond that was what they got to keep for their pay. And so if a publican didn't collect more than what he was required to collect, then he didn't make any money. And so it was, it's, I've always loved those two things that John the Baptist tells them because he's basically telling the soldiers, quit your job. And he's basically telling the tax collectors, quit your job. <laughs> 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 oh yeah and, and and the stories in luke 3 for anyone interested but yeah i i mean 14 i, I turned i turned it open because man I, I i do i love that story too and the soldiers likewise demanded of him saying and what shall we do and he said unto them do violence to no man neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages so yeah, it's like <laughs> your whole job revolves around being violent. So so that entire aspect of your job, don't do don't uh, don't, don't do that, do that thing part. anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just it's it's magnificent to see the who God chooses to do what. The message that those people have had. Why did why was Moroni chosen to be Joseph's mentor? Why was John the Baptist chosen to do this? Why Peter, James, and John? 
what can we take from that? We're going to find that out in a future conversation. I think it's going to be pretty awesome. Well, I mean, uh, and part of that, I'm sure there's there's a lot more to it. Part of that is is what we've been talking about just with Joseph Smith and and Oliver Cowdery up to this point, and and Martin Harris as well, is that you know God could do His own work. These are these are people who have 100 percent consecrated themselves to the work of the Lord, and they are participating in it because that's what they love. They love the work. They have become the work and they have become one with the father. And so they're doing it exactly as he would. And, and I love how Oliver Cowdery describes John the Baptist coming down and speaking to them, saying he's their fellow servant. I mean, that, that that just dispels all the fear, right? That, Hey, I'm, I'm in this with you guys. I'm doing the exact same thing that you're trying to do here. You know, I'm participating with, with God in this whole work. And then for them to describe his love, right? That his love was the same love that they felt from the spirit and from the savior, because that's who he was. He, he was John the Baptist is fully participatory in the, um, experience the priesthood of God and and his work and his glory. Same with Peter, James, and John, right? And so that's that's kind of what I see here is that they have decided, you know, they fully consecrated themselves. Obviously at this point they're they're ostensibly resurrected beings, so they must have. (laughs) (laughs) They must have. Well awesome. Well I I think I've said pretty much everything I had planned to say, Ben. How about you? Yeah, me too. Kind of a shorter section here. Yeah, it was a little bit a shorter section. So next week, we're going to be going over Doctrine and Covenants 14 through 17. And these sections are going to deal primarily with the Whitmers. And, and they deal with the summer of 1829. So those are going to be some, some great, uh, great things to talk about. I'm excited. But uh, for, for now, I just wanted to announce that we have also set up a YouTube channel. You know, that's been kind of a work in progress for the for last little while. But um, if you like to listen to... Uh, to the to youtube or the podcast or the youtube let just so you know that's been opened up to go over there head over there subscribe click like and uh and open up for notifications and then we're going to also open up some channels there so that uh you know this podcast and also the latter-day contemplation that riley and christopher are involved with will be there so you can see those um back to forth or back and forth and you can be able to share those easily and then we will be opening up a new podcast called latter-day homilies where we will be opening up those up to the public. So if anybody wants to contribute, we'll be able to have ways of doing that. We are, we've already had several contributions in, and those are going to be really special. I absolutely love the homily format of how to be able to speak and, to, and kind of deliver a, a type of sermon in a homily, in a homily uh, organization and, and structure. And so we're going to be releasing those here pretty soon that we'll be able to release on the latterdaypeacestudies.org website, as well as on the YouTube channel that you'll be able to find in in iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and everything else that we've been able to do as well. So go over there, check that out, uh, like it, share it, and and we hope you find value in, in doing so. But until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening. 